Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and this is The Great America Show. We welcome you. Great to have you with us. The big story of the week, that is right after the breaking installments from the running drama at Fox News, is the 6 a.m. video announcement from the White House that the world's greatest living puppet president, who is 80 years old, impaired and compromised, has, after careful deliberation, deep prayer, earnest consultation with his family, and humble counsel with President Xi Jinping and Volodymyr Zelensky, he has made up his mind, and Mr. Biden has decided to run for reselection in 2024. And part of the excitement around the president's announcement, and let's face it, this wasn't entirely unexpected, part of the excitement is Mr. Biden has already thrown a change-up. And this is my insight, my analysis of what may not be obvious to casual observers. Biden's video message is the message, I believe. Biden announced he's running on video. And that's a big change from 2020, when he was doing most of his talking and campaigning from his basement in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, it looks to me like he's made a solid commitment to being on video throughout his re-election campaign. A lot to look for there in the coming weeks and months as President Biden seeks a second term and a way to energize and to excite a base that, for the most part, isn't excited or perhaps even excitable. The 30% of Democrats who do approve of President Biden's madcap policies of the last two and a half years are cheering. We haven't, however, checked in with the other 70% who are opposed to the idea. Biden's $7 trillion fiscal 2024 budget is a killer. There's no other way to say it. That is a heavy load for any, any incumbent to carry to the voters. And so is the almost $2 trillion deficit that results. For all practical purposes, Biden is leading a regime that has little resemblance to the constitutional republic that preceded it for 240 years. Biden has gone rogue, and he's getting away with it. He leads by fiat. He issues executive orders and does exactly what he wants. Wide open borders. He's sending more than $100 billion to Ukraine. He refuses to arbitrate a peace deal with Russia and Ukraine. He's doing whatever China wants ends U.S. energy independence, draws down our strategic petroleum reserves to the lowest level in 40 years, and sells some of that oil to the Chinese, for crying out loud, then drives Saudi Arabia into the arms of Vladimir Putin and the Ayatollahs. Inflation is at 6%, markets are volatile, and the economy nearing recession. This is an incumbent looking for re-election? Really? And President Biden and his family are crooked, corrupt, and dangerous, I'm told reliably. The House investigating committees already have evidence that a dozen family members 
are profiting from Biden's influence peddling, and we know now for a fact that the Marxist Dems, the deep state, and Biden campaign in 2020 conspired to create a cover-up of Hunter's laptop with the help of the Obama intelligence chiefs and a deputy State Department official who is now Biden's Secretary of State. Biden may not be held to account for what he did in 2020, but I do believe he doesn't have a chance of re-election. Mark my words, not a chance. Biden may, of course, do more damage, and almost certainly he will. But this rogue Biden Marxist dim regime is in its last throes. But as they say, there's more. Not about Biden or even presidential politics, but about what some have styled humanity's last invention, or the end of civilization, the end of the human era. Now, I would call that somewhat sensationalist exposition. But what do I know? What do any of us know, really, when compared to artificial intelligence, which promises to be humanity's next big thing? Revolutionary, explosive, amazing, transformational. And only a few thousand people on this planet seem to know what this thing called artificial intelligence really is or what it's likely to become. But we do know we're all about to be profoundly affected by it. And I thought it might be useful if you and I started to learn more about AI, or AGI, Artificial Generative Intelligence, its benefits, its dangers, and our guest today is one of those few on this planet who's been thinking about AI for some time. He co-founded, in fact, a machine learning startup. The company was Geometric Intelligence, which he sold to Uber seven years ago. He's a cognitive scientist, NYU professor emeritus of psychology and neural science, and author of Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. Available on Amazon, and we recommend the book to you highly. And we welcome to The Great America Show, Gary Marcus. Gary, good of you to be with us. We're almost all of us hearing a lot about AI. We know the big tech companies are warning all of us about the dangers of AI, the dangers of AI just in the hands of the corporations themselves. And we're told by the Biden Department of Homeland Security that they want all the AI they can get to control people and to control information. And we don't like the sound of that either, Gary. The truth is, most of us don't know whether to fear or cheer AI. So could we please start, Gary, with just what is artificial intelligence? It's actually hard to define. It's a little, I know it when you see it, but it's basically the idea of machines doing smart things. You could argue and say a calculator counts as a little bit of artificial intelligence. And you could say that the Star Trek computer that could talk about anything is maybe a lot more artificial intelligence. Intelligence actually has many different aspects to it. But basically, we're talking about machines that can do smart things, maybe replacing people, maybe augmenting people to do things they couldn't do before. Augmentation. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting word because this concern right now being expressed by that in that open letter uh, and now in follow up to that, uh, there's, I, I will put it this way, AI leaders, including yourself, uh, talking about really the dangers uh, that AI represents. Uh, and right now, that seems to be more the focus than the benefits of AI. Do you agree? 
Well, I mean, they're both. I think a lot of people are thinking every day about the benefits. So, for example, these new systems save computer programmers a lot of time, and increasing the productivity of programmers is a great thing. So there's definitely some benefits here. They're also fun to play with and so forth. But you ultimately, you want to ask a kind of cost-benefit trade-off. Um, and there are certainly a lot of risks around these systems. And, and things have moved so quickly that I would say the first thing that a lot of us are saying is maybe we need to slow down and understand where we are. So I don't think anybody can give an honest question to do the benefits outweigh the risks because nobody fully understands with these new technologies what the limits are and how they can be used. So probably someone else might make the, the case for the positive. I've been focusing on the negative and trying to understand that. Um, my biggest short-term concern is about misinformation, the ability of, say, foreign countries to disrupt elections by making up as much misinformation as they want in incredibly plausible ways. Nobody can tell the difference. Um, just much greater volume. So the cost of misinformation has gone to zero, and I think that's threatening democracy. So that's one concern I have. Another concern is that cyber criminals can use this stuff to trick people. And there are now new tools like AutoGPT, where one AI controls another, and we might see situations where people do like um, uh, fishing expeditions to get people's credentials, or there's something called a pig butchering scheme where you pretend to, to be somebody's friend and eventually get them to send you money and you milk them for money. Um, we may see those things automated in a way that we've never seen before. So there are a lot of risks like that. I would call those near-term risks. Another near-term risk is that people might trust these new search engines that don't really know what they're talking about, aren't really that reliable with, for example, medicine or um, consult them almost like they would consult a psychiatrist. And there may be problems there as well, misinformation, bad advice. Um, we've already seen a situation where people are essentially in love with these um, chatbots and then the chatbots stop basically having um, what is the, the polite way to say this? Having relations with them, um, verbal relations with them. And people were really upset. And so, like, we have attachment issues, too. Most people don't understand that these systems aren't really in form attachments. Um, so there, there are a lot of different questions like that. And then there are longer-term questions about what happens if you have a lot of systems that aren't fully reliable and you start hooking them up to more and more aspects of the world. And they're really long-term questions. I, I don't take so, so seriously, but I don't think we have a full answer to like the kind of Terminator scenario. Where, like what if they turn on us? And I don't mm -hmm. think that's very plausible, but I don't think we have a formal proof that it can't happen. And so I think we do need to take it into consideration. And the reality is, although these new AI systems are very interesting, we don't fully control them. We don't fully understand what they're doing. We call them black boxes. We put in a lot of input data. We don't know exactly what comes out. We don't know exactly what they do. And, and that's enough for at least some of us to say, maybe we should slow down. You know, my TED talk yesterday, what I called for was for global governance for AI, some kind of coalition where we bring governments together with the companies and as broad a representation around the world to try to figure out what should we do about many different individual questions in AI in some kind of coordinated way. Nobody really wants to have you know, 195 companies, 195 countries with 195 sets of rules. That's not even in the interest of the companies. And the companies have to spend a lot of money to train their models if they have to do that you know, uniquely for every country. That's not really good for them either. So I think we're in a rare moment in political history where kind of everybody actually wants the same thing, which is to figure out a regulatory framework where the tech companies can do what they want, but where the citizens are protected and where governments still you know, have some power. Uh, and so it, it's an interesting and complicated moment in history, but I think it's a good 
moment to try to work this out. And we don't want to do this like five years from now. We really want to do it now. It's fascinating to start pondering all of the possibilities here uh, to even in restricting, if you will, containing artificial intelligence, uh, restraining it uh, still under human control, if you will. Uh, and when I said that word augmentation is interesting because uh, augmentation can also suggest uh, giving great power to the the folks you just talked about, uh, uh, criminals, uh, those who mean to do harm in any fashion. Uh, and, and we ultimately are talking about policing, not AI, uh, but ourselves uh, in that instance. And yet the long-term dangers, as you put out, and frankly, uh, Gary, you're the only one I know who's talked about this in both the near term and the long term, talked about it in terms of the uh, immediate societal impact as well as the long term. Uh, and I think that uh, all of that has to be discussed. But I really wonder, when I see Time magazine saying, uh, you know, we really can't, uh, we can't pause. Uh, we've, uh, you know, we've got to pause, excuse me, uh, and we've got to uh, hold fire. The Chamber of Commerce comes out and says, we can't pause. We've got to beat the, the doggone Chinese uh, or, or the Russians or whomever. Uh, that divide is proximate and, and it's critical because that's what we're talking about now is competitive uh, AI and the nation states are the ones who are going to be most competitive uh, in terms of retaining power. The corporations most aggressive, uh, given the fact that they are competitive institutions and mean to win as well, but in a different realm, right? I mean, there's a lot going on there. So there's definitely competition between the companies, there's competition between the countries. There's an argument that we shouldn't pause because China will get way ahead of us. I'm not so worried about the particular thing in the sense that the AI that we have now is still fairly limited. Um, I think there are a lot of fantasies that like if China gets to use GPT-5 three months before we do, that they'll invent, I don't know, spaceships or they'll they'll invent some renewable energy that we don't have or something like that. And these tools are not really good for that. I mean, there will be AI like that that's sort of genuinely super intelligent, can do scientific reasoning, um, invent new technologies. What we're talking about now is more like productivity enhancer. I mean, people probably play with ChatGPT. You can use it to write boilerplate text for you and things like that. Um, it's not going to completely change the world if one nation can write boilerplate text faster than the other, um, or even if one can code faster than the other for a few months. It might make some differences in productivity. I don't think, I don't think we're at the level of the technology that some people are fantasizing about. You know, China's not going to wake up and build interstellar travel that we don't because they have this tool a few months earlier. But there are all these nearer term problems um, that everybody faces, whether they have GPT-4 or GPT-5. I don't know that that's really the critical variable. Um, and nobody really is calling for the end of all AI research. The letter itself actually caused, called for a pause only on particular research on this one model GPT-5 and actually encourage more research around safety, around making these systems trustworthy and reliable. I think of the AI we have right now as sort of like a teenager, like it's powerful but not very well controlled yet. It doesn't have a prefrontal cortex to kind of tell it what's right and wrong. And I think we should be mostly focused not on like who builds the biggest model fastest, but who can figure out how to make this stuff tractable and reliable, um, have the stuff 
work in an ethical way and an honest way. They have a huge problem with hallucinations, making stuff up. Um, nobody's calling for a ban on that kind of research. And I think we should focus more on that, on how to make it so that these systems are things we can count on. I mean, like, you know, it's a nightmare science fiction story when the computer goes out of control. What we really want are computers that will do what we want them to do and that are aligned with our, our interests. And we don't really have that so much yet. We're going to find out what we do have here next. We're talking with Gary Marcus, a leading voice in artificial intelligence. Stay with us for this quick message from our sponsors. We're coming right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back now. We're talking with Gary Marcus. And Gary, you mentioned uh, science fiction. Uh, and I go back to 1969 and uh, you know, Space Odyssey and HAL. Uh, we're talking about something that's 50, uh, 50 years old uh, is, is a very good, I think, metaphor for what all is going on. Uh, and Avatar of Two is, is for that matter. We're, how close are we to Hal? Well, Hal had very good language, very good comprehension. I would say it's ahead of what we have right now. That What we have now gives an illusion of understanding language, but it doesn't really. Um, sometimes I think of her, if you want to talk about science fiction, where the Scarlett Johansson uh, character was sort of all-purpose general assistant who understood a lot of things, had a good theory of how human beings worked. Um, I would say we're somewhat far from that. The latest research shows these systems don't really have that. Um, the thing that we have now that's probably most impressive is these systems are general. They can work on many different things, but their level of comprehension is still pretty poor. In that sense, I think we're still fairly far from how. And of course, you know, I don't want to give away the plot for anybody who still hasn't seen 2001, but let's just say that issues about control are important there. Um, they weren't fully resolved in the movie, and they're certainly not fully resolved in, in, in the real world right now. And as we are, uh, Sundar Pichai said, the CEO of Google, said he, he doesn't believe this is a decision for any corporation. Uh, it, it, and he is calling, uh, just as you intimated, uh, for a broader discussion with ethicists, philosophers. Uh, and and we're talking about then, of course, the possibility of the, the intrusion. And I know you're calling for government involvement, uh, global governance. But right now, we have government that uh, I'm a product of the 60s, uh, Gary. I don't trust government. And I am not the first person to, to get to the line and say, you know, I, what we need here is more government and government control. Uh, your thoughts on uh, the problems that would be created with one world governance? I mean, I think the you know, a critical part of what makes the U.S. government work as well as it does, which is not perfectly, is, is checks and balances. Um, 
and I think we need some checks and balances in, in the global governance of AI. We need to have both the companies and the governments at, ta at the table, and they have, both have interests that are not necessarily truly aligned with the citizen's interest. You know, in an ideal world, maybe they would be, but we don't live in that ideal world. Um, and so I think we need a lot of stakeholders to balance a lot of things here. Um, I think that you know, we don't want the companies to have all the power either, right? So nobody really thinks about it, for example, but ChatGPT is sucking down lots of private information. We saw, I think it was right. Samsung a week ago, you know, people were typing in private company data and then suddenly OpenAI had its hands on. Um, and so, you know, there, there's multiple concerns here about who has control of data, about who makes decisions about the politics, essentially, of these systems. Um, there are concerns about whether we want any regulation about what you can release. So, for example, um, you know, in the pharmaceutical system, we have phase one, phase two, phase three trials. You don't just try something out on 100 million people without testing it first. Probably don't want the tech firms to be able to do that. That's what they did um, with Sydney, and they didn't really quite know what they were doing, as far as I can tell. Um, you know, they, they kind of just threw it out there and, and wanted to see what happens. And so we may want some regulation around that, for example, that the tech companies might not do on their own. Um, so there, there are many different trade-offs that have to be made. Um, but I think to leave them entirely to the government or entirely to industry, neither of those models really works. And so we need some way of, of balancing those interests. And you mentioned like having philosophers at the table. I think we need a lot of people at the table. We need economists, we need philosophers, anthropologists, um, pretty much all fields. I, th I think we really do want global representation here to try to come to something that works for everybody across the table. Working for everybody across the table, the, the folks I worry about are the folks, uh, that is, uh, people who are underrepresented right now, for example, in the United States. It's a government that is divided between two parties, neither of which is uh, arguably, in, in, well, I'll put it this way, in my view, uh, government is too much about uh, growing government. Uh, we have, we are very suspicious of what uh, these policies are leading to. Uh, we're very suspicious of uh, China uh, and its intentions toward the United States and indeed uh, world civilization. The, the, the threat of AI, and I understand that this is not proximate, that it is some time off, but the way in which uh, it's progressing seems geometric to me. Uh, what uh, GPT-4 uh, is, next up is 5, and how quickly do we get to 10 or 15? Uh, where, is there a velocity uh, a multiplier here that we sh should also expect? Um, I'll talk about that in a second, but I'll go back uh, first and say I don't think that AI governance actually should be a right-left issue. And I think it's interesting, for example, that Peggy Noonan, who was, as you well know, was Reagan's uh, speechwriter, one of Reagan's mm -hmm. speechwriters, you know, came out in the Wall Street Journal saying we need a longer pause. Um, I think that everybody, whatever their party is, should be concerned about tech companies having that much power to shape our lives without any kind of, um, you know, government say over it at all or, or any say for the people over at all. Um, you know, it's sort of like what we've seen by, with social media, but I think an even greater extent in terms of invasion of privacy and, and control about what information we see and, and so forth. So I think um, that we may actually see a surprising amount of unity between the right and the left, um, which, as we all know, has you know, largely been a dysfunctional divide for a long time. But I think on this issue, there's reason for everybody uh, to, 
to care. On the acceleration issue, um, it's not clear um, because the enormous energy costs, enormous expense of training bigger and bigger models, it's not clear how long we can push it. I like to think of Moore's law. We all thought you could just double the amount of transistors you had indefinitely forever um, and you know keep cutting the costs. And it, it actually, by most people's accounts, started to slow down around the year 2000. So Moore's law is not a physical law of the universe like gravity. It's just something that's a generalization that we saw over time for a while, and it lasted for a while, and then it stopped. It's not clear there's enough, let's say, electricity in the United States to actually train GPT. GPT-10 or GPT-11 or something like that. So at some point, these things are going to stop accelerating at the speed that they are, um, but they will continue for, for a while, and we're not that good at projecting out what they'll look like, say, even two years from now. And as we think about artificial intelligence and we think about uh, the cloud, uh, is can AI be contained or, or will we see an array of computers that just gets uh, double the volume every, uh, you know, following Moore's law, as you suggest, it won't perhaps won't uh, last much longer than Moore's law. But the fact is, it wouldn't have to do too much in the way of geometric progression uh, to be a, a, just a, an unthinkable and extraordinary uh, regenerative uh artificial intelligence that would be working at uh, at light speed uh, and creating just dazzling uh, uh, results. Well, yes and no. So like <clears throat> I wrote a piece, uh, an essay in my substack, GaryMarcus.substack.com called What to Expect When You're Expecting GPT-4. And I predicted that it would have a lot of the same problems as GPT-3, like hallucinating, making uh, make, making stuff up, having trouble understanding the physical world, the psychological world. And all of those predictions were actually true. Like there's some ways in which these systems are better and there's some ways in which they really haven't improved at all. I'll give you another example. GPT-4 was trained on a lot of chess games and on the rules of chess, but it can't even always follow the rules and it doesn't play any better than a chess computer from 1978. You wouldn't want to put it in a car um, to drive your car. There, there are lots of ways in which these AIs are actually still pretty limited and it's not clear that doubling and doubling the current technology is actually going to solve those problems so you will see kind of more of what we have now of this kind of being able to write boilerplate text and be able to do some interesting things but i wouldn't assume that it's going to be what we sometimes call excuse me artificial general intelligence that can solve any problem we're talking with Gary Marcus, a leading voice in AI. He's author of the book, Rebooting AI, uh, among the very first to be cautionary uh, in terms of AI. And uh, we're going to continue our discussion, and if I may say, Gary, a fascinating discussion. Stay with us, please, for this brief message from our sponsors. We're coming right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. 
on Fail Better. David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We're back now talking with Gary Marcus. And Gary, I have to say, thank you so much for being here today because you're instructive and you're illuminating and we appreciate very much your time and your and your thoughtfulness. Elon Musk warning of a, of a threat to civilization. It's a threat that you don't see, apparently, as... as not started. as imminent. I, I mean, I think it's possible, right. but I don't, I'm not as concerned about that particular one. I think we should have some awareness of it. And as we look at what's involved here, there is a, an effort to talk about transhumanism and AI as if they are, are, are uh, well, they're going to meld uh, into one, uh, one form. Your thoughts about that? I think we will see more and more kind of augmentation. I don't know about transhumanism, but like already, like my cell phone augments my mental life, right? Like it remembers all my phone numbers and appointments for me. Um, and we will see more and more of that where we rely on machines to do more and more for us. And I think there's been a lot of talk about people losing jobs. So far, AI has not taken that many jobs, but it's made a lot of jobs more powerful uh, and more effective. So like we heard five years ago that all the taxi drivers were going to lose their jobs and they didn't. We, we heard um, that radiologists were all going to lose their jobs and they didn't. What radiologists do now is they can do more work faster by using the AI, but there's still some human judgment there. You know, in 100 years, maybe machines will just do most of our work for us, but at least in the near term, they're just going to make our jobs easier. Um, and they'll change some people's jobs, they'll change the dynamics of it. But we will mostly be working together with the machines for a while anyway. Well, working together, uh, that sounds good. Uh, I have to say, some people, as you well know, consider it to be the next step in human evolution, which is uh, a fascinating concept. Uh, but you can't get perfection from artificial intelligence, at least now. What What is the future as you see it? I guess it depends on the time scale. I don't think anybody can predict what it's all going to be like 100 years from now. I mean, think about all the things that weren't here 100 years ago. Like, there, there weren't commercial um, airliners. There, there weren't cell phones. There, weren't, there was no social media. I guess there wasn't television yet, and then maybe on the drawing board. Um, you know, 100 years is a long time. And I think in the AI world, it's, it's particularly long. I'm just looking at what happened in the last few months. Um, so I don't think we can really predict that. I think we can predict that in the next decade, employment will still be pretty good, but maybe not as good as it is now. I think we can predict that driverless cars are actually going to take a while yet, that we're not really to the level of reliability to do that. Um, and we can predict that AI is going to be more and more of our daily life. And you know, that's going to rapidly escalate over the next several years. Uh, beneficial and helpful and uh, extraordinary. The good, I'm sorry. The good and, they are the good and the bad. We're going to see more good and we're going to see more bad. We're going to see more of it. It's going to be more of a focus of our lives. Going back to that word you used initially, augmentation. Uh, the choices, and you were talking about it shouldn't be a red or blue thing, uh, a partisan matter. 
but we always seem to devolve uh, to ideological and partisan differences uh, around the world. Uh, and we know those differences between China and the United States now are widening uh, and more intense than ever. Give us your judgment about what is a safe way to proceed to have a a geostrategic uh, advantage uh, against this country's enemies. I mean, I think, you know, every country has to continue to do the kinds of things that it's done in its defense. And, and you know, the U.S. needs to think about how, for example, its defense department can use these technologies, how it can deal with the limitations of these technologies. Like, I don't think anything really changes there. I mean, we're always trying to to figure out how to maximize our, our use of new technologies, and we certainly should be doing that. Um, I think we have to do it with eyes open. I think a lot of people treat these technologies as, as if they're magic, and really they're just a set of tools that have strengths and weaknesses. And so we need to be informed and nuanced about how we do it. Um, but I, I don't think any of that changes fundamentally but i think it is going to keep a lot of people really busy because suddenly there are all these opportunities and all these risks and it's going to take a lot of work to really understand you know how does this technology work in the real world what are the use cases where it's actually helping me what are the use cases where i can't really trust it so there's plenty of work and i mean the chinese have to do that just like the people in in the united states i'm, I'm an american citizen um you know everybody has to look at these new tools and say what are the risks what are the benefits how are we going to use them and when we look at the tools we're talking about government uh, and those in government trying to make assessments what strikes me and one of the reasons we're having this discussion and this program will be discussing this issue a lot because of uh, what you have been uh, talking about here today the potentialities are tremendous i i don't think I can think of a uh, of a development uh, that is any more powerful uh, uh, than this uh, seems to be. Uh, and government is not possessed of the minds that are necessary to comprehend and to to shape that future because of their technological uh, their right. there's, technologies. There's yeah, there's a very serious problem that governments aren't technologists and that they need technologists at the table and they need not only the technologists at the big corporations who obviously have vested interests, they need, you know, smart academics and researchers and so forth who have thought about these things too. And part of the reason to have a global alliance, which is what I'm pushing for, is to have a lot of expertise on board so that, you know, individual governments that don't have that expertise have a place to consult and, and you know, a neutral to ask, you know, what should I think of this new technology? We, we have nothing like that. Most governments have no training in this, or they have a few people that now have a little bit of training. Um, and that means they're not really up to speed. So, you know, governments need a place to turn. I think an international organization that's neutral could be, could be a place for the governments to get informed. I think there's also, we haven't talked about it, but a huge need for AI literacy around the entire globe um, right. for all citizens, for all governments. And that needs to be part of this too, is, is figuring out how to get people up to speed on like, when do you trust these things? Why you shouldn't treat them as humans, even though they seem like humans? Um, you know, how fast are they moving? What, what can they do? Where do they go wrong? Why do they hallucinate? Um, you know, we need a lot of literacy around that. I'm, I'm going to start doing some like uh, uh, animated videos with, with one of the television networks to try to raise some AI literacy. But we need to do this at every level from, you know, young kids all the way up to governments.
Well, and, and that's why we're, again, we're having this discussion here today. And one of the reasons we're deeply appreciative is because this, this podcast is going to be dedicated to, to raising that literacy and, and bringing uh, information to our audience uh, because... <laughs> It, it's just it's it's if uh, I, I'm a populist and I want uh, you talked about people around the table. I want the people around that table uh, and not intermediaries. I want them there uh, because the, the center of this country depends on uh, on them. Uh, that's that's where we live and our values shine brightest uh, when this nation is at its best. Uh, give us, if you will, here as we're wrapping up here. Give us. Can, can a, I sure. can actually jump in for one second? Sure. Um, I don't usually plug things so directly, but I think it's so relevant. I, I have a new podcast call, coming out called Humans versus Machines, and it's really designed to get people kind of a deep dive into how all these things work. So Great. we'll, for example, talk about the rise of IBM Watson and how they won in Jeopardy and then how they overpromised and said they'd solve cancer and how that failed. So that's Humans Machines comes out coming out next week um, and is Great. very much designed to go to the people and, and teach people um, how this all works. And the title is Humans and Machines? Humans versus Machines. Versus Machines. I think you've got a great title there. <laughs> it, looks, Thank you. it looks like that's exactly what uh, we're going to be uh, looking, talking about it in terms of uh, whether appropriately or not. Uh, okay. I, I think that's wonderful, and I, I wish you all of the best of luck. Uh, and I want to, uh, once again, it's Humans versus Machines, a podcast starting, you said, next week. Gary, Gary Marcus yep. will be leading that, hosting it, and we look forward to that. And, Gary, we also uh, hope you will come back and join us on this podcast uh, for more I'd love to. discussions. It fun. It's fun and it's really important. So anytime. And we always give our guests the last word. Uh, so your concluding thoughts uh, here today. I think we, everybody needs to come together around this left, right, governments, corporations, citizens. We all need to make sure that we get the value out of these things, but also that we have enough control over them that we can trust them. Well said. And I want to say to you, thank you so much for being with us here today, for educating uh, us. I will add um, specifically myself. I, I appreciate it so much, Gary. It's just uh, been wonderful talking with you. I hope you'll come back soon. I'd love to. Real pleasure. Thank you very much. Gary Marcus, thanks for the tutorial. Thanks for being with us. I hope you found Gary as interesting and instructive as I did. It's a tough subject but one I think we all need to be thinking about, and we're going to have a number of guests here to lead us through all of this. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. Here tomorrow, our guest will be former Trump presidential assistant Peter Navarro. Peter Navarro has been charged with contempt of Congress for honoring the presidential executive privilege that the January 6th committee chose to utterly ignore. Peter's been in a battle, and he's fighting through. Please join us tomorrow. Till then... Thank you, and God bless you.